welcome all of you who come to St. Anne's on this beautiful Sunday before Thanksgiving as we celebrate the last Sunday of the liturgical year, the Feast of Christ the King, and to welcome all who join us by way of spiritual communion to our live stream. Once again, we offer this service to you who are sick and shut in, and those who join us from so many different parts of our country. We welcome you to St. Anne's here in Washington, D.C. Did you ever think about why we genuflect when we come into church? Or why we make a profound bow? Or before communion, make a bow of the head? Or why do we get down on our knees during the Eucharistic prayer? Where does that all come from, that tradition of bowing and genuflecting? In fact, the genuflection is a distinctively Catholic thing among Christians, for the most part. Now, it comes from the most historic royal court protocols. The Egyptians did this, the Greeks, the Romans, the Persians. Just about every great culture where there is a king or a queen, a monarch, an absolute ruler, there has been this tradition of bowing and getting down on one's knees before the Almighty. So when we come into church, we have, as Roman Catholics, adopted that practice throughout the ages of genuflecting, getting down on our knees, as it were, bowing before the Almighty, the King of Kings the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, who is truly present, really present in body and blood in every tabernacle in the world. Wherever you go in this world, you will find the real presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, and we come into his court, as it were, into his palace, that is a sacred place, this church, any church, where he rules in body and blood over his assembly, his church, his people of God, and we pay humble service. Specifically, in the military, historically, a soldier would come into the presence of the king and remove his headgear. In fact, even enemies that came in, or diplomats, they would remove their helmets, any kind of device around their head, and lower their head in humble submission, but making their neck vulnerable to the sword. To lay down one's arms, as it were, and to ad admit with humility and vulnerability that this king could slay me. So all of that bowing and genuflecting, and that this comes from rich traditions that the Catholic Church adopted over the ages and we do that again to show tremendous humility and vulnerability before him, who, unlike any other king really the world has ever known, did the same for us and does the same for us. He humbly, vulnerably bows down to us. This is amazing. 
And this is not a king who wants us to stay on our knees before him. He wants us to come to him, embrace him. But so many don't want to come to Jesus. And I don't know why that is, but I think fundamentally it's fear. Fundamentally, it's fear. Out of shame, guilt perhaps, unworthiness. But so many fear this king. Isn't that interesting though in the irony of, of history that when Jesus was announced that there'd be this long-awaited Messiah, the King of the Jews, was to be born in Bethlehem. There was tremendous fear. Herod and the Pharisees, so many were wondering, who could this be? And there was fear. In fact, we will tell that story at Christmas around a month from now, again and again, how Herod was so fearful of this newborn prince, this king of the Jews, that he sought to kill every child, every male boy under the age of two. And that went on for a long time. Tens of thousands of children were killed out of fear. And what was his fear? His fear was political insecurity, of course. But more than that, that this king could rival him. This king could challenge him. This king might have an army. This king might have resources to make my life difficult, enslave me, and I'm not going to have that. I'm not going to bow down to any other king. I am my own king, and he can't tell me what to think, what to do. I'm not going to submit myself to anyone else. I am independent, totally. Now, again, I think people fear Jesus 2,000 years later because there's a certain sense of that same dynamic that goes on. I don't want him to tell me what to do. I don't want to listen to his voice because it might challenge my conscience to do something, to change my life, to repent. I, I don't want to do that. I'm comfortable where I am. I don't want anyone to tell me. We say this to ourselves all the time. I don't want anyone to tread on me. I am an American. I am free to think and do as I want. But when it comes to the gospel, the Lord is saying things that sometimes challenge us. And he doesn't rule with an iron rod. He doesn't say, look, if you don't listen to my voice, you're going to go to hell. Our Lord never said that, did you? In, in all the Gospels, our Lord never says, if you do this, you... He talks about the consequences of sin. He talks about. But our Lord never condemns anyone specifically. In fact, if anything, he really just opens up the question. It's a Socratic question, as we've said so many times. Our Lord is asking. In fact, here's a perfect example of that in John's Gospel. Here's Pilate, who's also afraid. Here's Jesus now 33 years later. Pilate is now the governor in Judea. And he's heard about this incredibly powerful man. And you can imagine, Pontius had not seen Jesus before, but now he's scourged, he's whipped, he's got a crown of thorns, he's bloody, 
and he appears before Pilate in the Praetorium in Jerusalem, and Pilate says, how silly. You're a king, really, look at you. What a mess, what a total loser you are. You just imagine, Pilate was so afraid, and now he's looking at this meek, mild, humble, dying man. Are you a king? And Jesus says what? You say so. Our Lord is always avoiding all those trappings of kingship. Because in the mind of the Jew 2,000 years ago, Jesus was anticipated as the long-awaited return of King David, the great king, the greatest of kings, perhaps, in the history of Judaism. And it was very confusing for them to see this carpenter's son, this lowly, simple guy, which is why Judas, in fact, as a revolutionary from the Sakari family, Judas Iscariot, was so incredibly engineering about getting Jesus to create the revolution so there could be a restoration of a great kingdom. And the kingdom of God, as anticipated, would be manifest through physical signs of wealth and, and prestige, and enemies would be put asunder, and the Greeks and the Romans would be enslaved by them, and they would rule the world forever. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, the great Messiah would restore Israel, the people of God, to their rightful place in the world. So that's when Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. Sorry, my kingdom is not here. No, no. For this reason I was born, and for this reason I came into the world to testify to the truth. If you continue that same narrative from John's gospel, Pilate will say, truth, what is that? It's all relative. It's relative to whoever's in control. Well, Christ is always in control because this is not a king only of the Jews. This is the king of the Gentiles. This is the king of kings, the king of the universe. See, other monarchies have come and gone. When Pope Benedict XV instituted this feast on December the 11th, 1925, think back to the history of Europe. Monarchies were falling left and right. We'd already been through the French Revolution. There had already been so many other problems in Italy with the kingdoms of Italy all being dissipated. And then Garibaldi unites it under one republic, a democratic republic. Greece was losing its monarchs. And Egypt and the Near East, all these kings were dying off, revolutions. And Benedict wanted to say, look, there is one king and one kingdom that will never end. Rest assured, if you want order in the world, then you must look to the king, the king, the almighty. His kingdom will never end. We say that in a moment in the creed, as we do every Sunday. And his kingdom will never end. Will never come to an end. The question is, as we come before him then, 
before the King of Kings. We acknowledge that he rules us not with tough-mindedness. Oh, Jesus can be firm, but he's not an ogre. He's not a tyrant in that sense. So when people fear Jesus, they often fear the judgment. He knows me, and so his wrath, his anger, his condemnation, no, no, that's, that's their problem. Don't project onto Jesus your problems. This is not a God who condemns you. Because if he did, he wouldn't have done that. He would not have saved you. That's strange. If he was to condemn you, why would he save you? And this is the only king that dies for his people. Not just for you. Not just for a particular tribe or family or nation or for the Jews alone. No, for all. A universal king who lays down his life in humility, in vulnerability. This is a king who has demonstrated perfectly what it means to rule, to govern with humility, with mercy. Wow. These aren't cheap things, friends. Mercy is not cheap. It's bought at great price. And it takes sacrifice to be merciful. And so he doesn't rule with beautiful robes. No, look at his garments. Bloodstained loincloth. And for his crown, oh really? Look at it. Thorns. And for his scepter, two pieces of wood. That's why most of the world will look at Jesus as king as a ridiculous thing. That's no king. That's a tragedy, a tragic story. But we don't see that in faith because behind all of that is victory. This is triumph. This is a glorious moment. So on this Sunday then, finally, as we come before the King of Kings, we acknowledge in our humility that sometimes we have made other persons, places, and things of great royalty, of great majestic power over us. We've enabled people to have that power over us, or we give into it, or we use that to control and to use and abuse. Welcome to Washington. Right. Welcome to the story that has never changed in the history of the world, where people with power can do a lot of things for good or for evil. But the question each one of us has is, do I really acknowledge him as king in my heart? Does he have rule over my heart? Have I given him that rule? Do I submit before him? Do I bow down before him? Or is it just show? Yes, your grace, but I have a knife in my hand. No, this is not show. This is not make-believe. This is real. So we ask then, as we wrap up this liturgical year and anticipate a new year with Advent next Sunday, and as we also give thanks to God this week in a national celebration of Thanksgiving, to be mindful, too, of all, not only our blessings from him, but all those things, those persons and places that get in the way of allowing him full kingship over our hearts. To him be glory and praise.
who is the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, who was, who is, and will come in glory. To Jesus Christ, King of the universe, reign our hearts and govern us with the love and mercy you promise to those who subject their hearts to you.